Go ahead and grab your Bibles this morning and open them up to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, and we are going to take a look this morning at verses 25 to 28 of Matthew chapter 23. Yeah, it's going to be good. You got it. (laughs) Matthew 23. And if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 23, verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside... They are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please, I'll look like a loser to all my friends if you don't buy them for me, was my impassioned grade 8 plea to my parents. When everyone in my class wore and prided themselves on on owning a very particular brand of jeans with very specific markings and leather patches around the front and the back pockets. All the kids who owned a pair, they were the in kids, the cool kids, while those who didn't count a pair of these jeans among their possessions were out. But way back in, the ni- in 1990, as I entered into grade 8, for a pair of jeans was absolutely outlandish for my parents. $100 was a small fortune in our household where money was not the most plentiful of resources. And it wasn't just jeans, but I also required some name brand shoes to go along with those jeans. And I begged for those too. Please, Mom, please, Dad, everybody is wearing these. And if you remember in the 1990 what the popular shoe was, maybe you're going to age or date yourself here, but at that time it was a shoe called the Reebok Pump. I don't know if you remember those. They had a basketball logo on the tongue of the, of the shoe, and you could press and squeeze it, and as you squeezed it, it would fill your shoes with air for a tighter fit. But they were also quite expensive, 
But when you watch the NBA and you see these guys lining up to take their free throw shots, they would always bend down and pump up their shoes for a free throw. Why for a free throw? I don't know. It's not like you're actually playing. Why you pump your shoes up for that part? But everybody wanted a pair of these things. So a bunch of kids in my class, they wore Reebok pumps and these wonderful leather patch jeans. But that wasn't the case for me. Instead of the designer jeans and instead of the Reebok pumps that I pleaded for, I was blessed with the knockoff versions of both. And I still remember my parents hauling me into the byway and into Bargain Heralds. Anyone remember? And having selected for me two pairs of jeans. The name of those jeans were called Today's News. It's etched into my memory, the knockoff name of these jeans. And along with a pair of Reebok pump knockoffs called Slammin' Jams. And I left the stores on that day dejected, my friends. And try as I might to hide the labels on the jeans and try as I might to pass off my shoes as the real deal, the kids all knew. And they mercilessly badgered me and made fun of me for living the knockoff life. Now, this is not meant to be a sob story by any means because my parents were right not to buy me those jeans and not to buy me those shoes. Sorry, teenagers. That's something I know now given 30, 32 years of hindsight. Something I know now given the fact that I am a parent that has children doing that to me. But these memories do make me think of the amount of time, the amount of effort, the amount of energy that I put into, the amount of capital that I put into, that we put into, that all of us put into, ensuring that we carefully fix our external experiences or external appearances for others. See, I begged my father for those shoes because, and those jeans because I wanted to look good to my fellow grade eights. More than anything else, I hope to present myself to them as something more than I actually was. Everyone wore those jeans, everyone had those shoes because they were expensive and they wanted everyone to know that their family had money. But the reality is, even if my parents would have bought me those shoes and would have bought me those pants, even if I would have proudly worn them to school while the other kids might have thought that my family had money too, it would have been nothing more than a sham, a pretense. It was a, would have been a work of fiction that I was presenting for everybody around me. I'd have been passing myself off to them as something that I wasn't, a rich kid. Not that there's anything wrong with being a rich kid. And yet, even so, I wanted to appear, as the words in the text say, outwardly beautiful in their eyes so that I might fit in to the group that I wanted to fit in with. And I had zero issue with presenting myself in ways externally that didn't actually match the reality of my family situation. Nor did I care one bit about thinking what's going on in my heart in any way, what's, what's going on inside me. I didn't care one bit about kindness and compassion and sympathy and holiness in the rest or the rest. No, for me, designer shoes... And designer pants were all I needed. I wanted to look good. I had little to no concern about actually being good. 
And isn't this one of our most persistent problems as human beings? Our obsession with, our fixation with, our outward appearances on looking good and presenting ourselves in certain ways to each other and spending far more time appearing outwardly beautiful, spending far more time cleaning the outside of the cup and the plate than we do with actually dealing with any internal greed or any internal wickedness or any internal self-indulgence or whatever other heart issues that we conceal from others because we instead would rather fixate and emphasize and have people concentrate on how we present ourselves externally. This week, as I was pondering this idea, I did a little bit of internet research and I learned a lot about the depths to which people will go in their efforts to appear outwardly beautiful to the world while not caring anything about their internal situation. I actually came across a phrase this week that I had never heard before called face-tuning. Now, you could probably guess what face-tuning is just by the, the term, face-tuning. In like way that, in like manner to the music you listen to today, it's all auto-tuned, meaning it's not really their voice. This is face tuning. It's both the name of an app that is used to edit and, as those who use it like to put it, touch up photos and selfies before they post them to their preferred social media sites. With this app, you can whiten your teeth. Because, you know, if you take a picture of yourself out in the snow, your teeth are revealed for the yellow that they are. You can change your eye color. You can eliminate and erase any zits or other facial blemishes that you may have. You can smooth out your skin. You can add a tan, along with a number of other alterations by which to create and post pictures that a number of people say, this is me, unaltered and unedited, which but are in fact forgeries and lies and fraudulent portrayals of themselves that sometimes only bear the slightest resemblance to what they looked like in the original photo. And the amount of people who swear up and down that they've done nothing to edit or touch up their photos, that there is no editing, only to be caught, is staggering. They get irate when they're called out. I saw one picture of this girl who wrote... You see, guys, my eyes are changing color naturally. And on the picture was the name of the eye editing software that she was using to change her eye color in the picture. It's gotten so bad that there is now a category for this called Instagram reality. Instagram reality is not actual reality, but it's the phony reality that people are selling online the phony, heavily edited versions of themselves that they present to other people. And as I look deeper into this Instagram reality, this face-tuning phenomenon, this addiction to and preoccupation with creating a curated version of oneself to display to others that has little to no connection to reality, I saw that this trickery and this fakery is actually everywhere. There are entire websites devoted to exposing this duplicity, and I found them quite funny as I looked through them. On such sites, I saw people doing things like 
pretending they were sleeping and posting a picture of themselves sleeping with a caption below that read something like, my boyfriend or girlfriend took this picture of me while I was sleeping. Aren't they so cute? I look so horrible. But what they really for, what they forgot was that the mirror behind them showed that their hand was up there taking a picture of themselves. The mirror showed the truth. They took the picture themselves. And I kept asking myself, why would anyone do this? It is beyond me that this is a thing. The sheer number of people who Photoshop themselves into pictures of famous monuments, into landmarks and on beaches, and then post them to their social media sites with captions that say things like, loving my time here in Rome, you should come too. Or I love this globe-trotting life. But their editing jobs are so bad that everyone can see that they're lying. And still others will go and edit their bodies, edit the proportions of their bodies, reshape their faces. Women will shrink their waistlines and men will expand their biceps and their abs to gargantuan proportions with both forgetting to edit the shadows behind them that reveal a much less flattering reality. And it's not just the pictures on social media, but it's the way that the rich and famous in our world present themselves as well. I mean, how many times have you heard of some cultural elite lecturing you and I about some current issue only to violate their own public words in their private life? I think about hearing certain movie stars and singers scolding the common man and the common woman recently about conserving natural resources, about making sure that you're recycling more, about using less fossil fuels, about ensuring that you take public transit more often than you do every day because you're contributing to holes in the ozone layer only to hear that those same folks use their private jets 10 times a day for 15-minute jaunts to and fro because they wouldn't be caught dead on public transit. And on a more personal level, just think about our own lives. Think about how much time and energy you and I spend on our external appearances and on how we present ourselves to others. I was reading this week also that the cosmetic industry, now, a cosmetic industry is aimed at advertising and peddling external beauty aids to both men and women. Skincare products to reduce wrinkles, makeup to cover up natural beauty, Colognes and perfumes to give ourselves a scent other than our natural one. And the rest is projected and poised by next year to break in $675 billion. Because the increasing number of people living in this Instagram reality, our face-tuning culture, that are unhappy with all of their natural imperfections and blemishes, flock to purchase what they are told will cover up everything that makes them flawed and present them beautiful in and to the world they live in. And that $675 billion is not including all the tummy tucks and different enlargements and Botoxes and facelifts and the host of other surgeries that people engage in whose sole aim is physical external beauty. $675 billion plus billions of dollars more are spent by people all over the world who want to amplify their external allure and appeal to those they come in contact with in their everyday lives. $675 billion. That's a staggering number to me. To what purpose? 
To what end? Other than the cleansing of the outside of the cup and plate. Other than simply appearing outwardly beautiful. Think about all the time that we spend in front of our mirrors, picking at our facial imperfections that we don't want anyone to see, covering them over because we don't want to be embarrassed. Think about, and bear with me here because I have not had hair for a long time, think about the long stretches of time and the amount of money that is spent gelling, moosing, hairspraying, blow-drying, straightening, curling, crimping, frosting, lengthening, shortening, buzzing, and shaving your hair to your preferred style. Think about how much time is spent searching and shopping for clothes that complement our bodies just right. And then as we get those clothes, how much of our time is spent primping them and sprucing them up so that when people see us, it's just so. And as we do all of this, we know, right? We know that it's all going to change. The companies that sell us these products and push this, these, these ideas of beauty, they know that they need to keep changing it. They need to keep changing the standards in order to keep us coming back for more. To keep us buying more. And so as new standards of beauty, external beauty arise, we follow suit. We change our wardrobes. We add to them and we throw out or we, give, we generously donate our clothes that are now no longer fashionable to other people and then tell ourselves, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty generous. Look, I gave away my bell bottoms. <laughs> and we all know this to be true. If you don't think it's true and you're my age or older, I want you to, when you go home today, open up your old photo albums and take a look at yourself in the 80s. You all know, I could hear you, you're all laughing. You all know what your pictures in the 80s look like, right? Ladies with your feathered hair and your really high bangs. Men with your, plant, with your pants that have four pleats on both sides of the pant. With your Burt Reynolds mustache and your shirts with neon and wacky colors. All of this is to say that the temptation to spend more time curating our external appearance and reputation with more vigor and gusto than we put into cleaning the outs inside of the cup and the plate is still quite common among us today as it was for the Pharisees in Christ's day. And while the Pharisees in Christ's day didn't have the added tools that we have, they didn't have face-tuning apps and Instagram filters, they did suffer from the same root issue in their hearts. That of focusing more, more of their efforts on external presentation than on the state of their heart, on the state of their soul before the Lord. And for this, Jesus denounced them. For this reason, Jesus pronounces his fifth in a series of seven woes against them. We're looking at the fifth woe this morning. In a long, in, in, we'll be looking at that in a long way, and then the sixth woe, woe we'll do very shortly at the end. But look again at verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup 
and the plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. See, the scribes and the Pharisees, if you look at these men walking down the street, you would say, they look fantastic. They had the nicest clothes on, and they had the most uh, pious and holy types of external lives. They adorned themselves, as Jesus had already said in 23, verse 5, with broad phylacteries, if you just look back. The phylactery being this little box that contained small pieces of parchment with Bible verses on them, with scripture written on them, wrapped around their foreheads and wrapped around their left arm, always within sight of everybody. They also wore long fringes, which were tassels that hung from their clothing that were designed, according to Numbers, to bring to remembrance the commandments of the Lord. Most people just kind of wore short ones, but the Pharisees, trying to look even more holy, they decided to make theirs go really far down because, you know, they're much more spiritual if they have such external, such externals. Their long headdresses and their wide and broad phylacteries on their foreheads and left arms, all of this was designed to externally distinguish themselves from the common folk. But it wasn't just in their clothing that they did this. As we learned throughout our time in Matthew so far, the scribes and Pharisees had also created a complex system of works-based righteousness. If I do these things, they thought, then God will love me and save me and I will win his affection. So what did they do? They did things like avoided sinners. They stayed completely out of any sinner's lives. Because they thought, if I'm in the presence of a sinner, they'll somehow make me dirty. They degraded tax collectors. They went to God's law, and they took out anything that had to do with the heart. They kind of tossed it to the side, and then reinterpreted the commandments of God in such a way that everything depended on their outward obedience. And then they created a number of external laws around that, so that and then pressed those external laws on everybody else. And as they did that, they contented themselves with the mere appearance of righteousness. Not true righteousness, appearances of righteousness. They contented themselves by thinking of their strict observance to the laws that they had created for themselves. And they left off any thoughts of the evils and the depravities that were full in their hearts. They were fine to wear the Reebok pumps and to look rich without actually being rich. And in this way, they cleaned the outside of the cup and the outside of the plate. Now, I'll, I'll confess to you that I'm not a pro at dishwashing by any means, but I do know this. Washing the outside of the cup or plate simply won't do, will it? Let's just say I was trying to get healthy. And so I started drinking raw eggs before a workout. Or let's just say I wasn't trying to get healthy, and I was gulping down huge glasses of eggnog during the Christmas season. And when I was done, I took that glass, and I washed the outside of it, and then I put it back in the pantry. Is that what it's called? The cupboard. Without washing the inside, would that be gross? It would be disgusting. 
I still remember being a teen, going to somebody's house and being given a glass of milk. They offered me a glass of milk, so I started at a friend's house. And I tipped back that glass of milk, and as I reached the bottom, there were large lumps from some previous drink still present in the bottom of the glass. The feeling of revulsion in that moment welled up inside of me, and I'll tell you, I still have not recovered from that today. But this is the Pharisees. A cup that you might drink from if you were only to look at the outside. But if you looked inside, it was filled with crusty lumps of filth that make you want to vomit when you see it. After having downed whatever was in the cup, the crusty lumps inside that cup, that is the scribes and the Pharisees, are described by Jesus in verse 25 as greed and self-indulgence. You see those two words? Greed and self-indulgence. And notice that Jesus said that they are full. Their hearts are full. Inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. That word for full there indicates that and speaks to the fact that they contained as much as was possible of these two things, all the while presenting themselves as externally holy. So Jesus is saying here that these men, these scribes and these Pharisees, they contain in themselves the fullest degree of greed and self-indulgence. So let's take a look at these two words, greed and self-indulgence, because as Christ has made clear in this text, these are the signs of a heart that is committed to the increase of external righteousness, but cares nothing for internal righteousness. Right? These are signs of someone who is committed to looking good externally for everyone and presenting themselves in a certain way, but have no concern with the state of their heart before God. Greed and self-indulgence. He starts with greed. Now, depending on your translation, you will see this word variously translated as extortion or robbery or bribery. This is a word that speaks to a heart that is characterized by an excessive desire to acquire and to possess more than what you need. The word, as I was looking this word up, a word that was consistently attached to it was the word rapacious. That word means to be aggressively greedy, to be covetous, to be materialistic, to be insatiably thirsty for more and for more and for more. This word also speaks to the desire to plunder and to swindle and to steal, if necessary, to appease your greed. The greedy are those who would tear another apart in a metaphorical sense to gain what they think they are owed, to get or to acquire what their heart desires. And it gets even worse because the greedy spoken of by Jesus are those who don't show themselves to be greedy, but those who are at heart greedy but present themselves as holy, righteous externally. But all the while, all the while we spend time with these outwardly righteous people, their internal motivations are self-seeking. See, the greedy present themselves as sheep among the sheep, but all the while they are ravenous wolves seeking to gain more from themselves, from the, for themselves, from the flock. And this greed can take many forms. 
It can refer to an unhealthy craving and desire for more money, something the Pharisees were all about. As you look at Luke 17, for example, Christ had just told the people a parable about money, and he summed it up with this most important truth in Luke 19.10. One who is faithful in a very little is faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is dishonest in much. In other words, if you are thinking to yourself, if I just had more money, I would give more, I would do more, I would accomplish more. Jesus here says, if you want to know what you would do with your money, if you had more of it, all you need to do is look at what you're doing with your money now, with the amount of money you have now. Because what you do with your money now indicates where your heart is in reference to money. And as Jesus concluded the parable, he said, No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And the Pharisees heard this, and they responded, Luke tells us, they responded like this. It says in Luke 16, 14, and 15, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. And Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. See, the greed of the Pharisee, the greed in the heart of the Pharisee, if affects the heart of the Pharisee. But it isn't limited to the Pharisee. Greed never remains lodged in the heart of the greedy. Again, the word for greed here carries with it the idea of a violent self-seeking that actually will rob other people. It might be the act of actually going out and stealing something from somebody or breaking into some place and taking from others. But it also speaks to the impact and the effects that a greedy person has on everyone around them. It's for this reason that Paul would write later to his protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. Now, you, hear, you know what a snare is, right? A snare is a wire that chokes the life out of whatever it captures. Into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people. Think about that word for plunging. Think about just jamming somebody's head underneath water, plunging and holding it there. That's what it means. It plunges people into ruin and into destruction. So the senseless and harmful desire that is greed impacts people who desire to be rich. But it also impacts everyone around them. Think about how professing Christians today who clean the outside of the cup but the, and the plate, but inside are full of greed, have devastated the reputation of Christ and His church in the world today. I know I harp on these guys a lot, but I just can't stand them. See the numerous ministries that are focused on you accumulating more wealth and who twist God's word in order to justify and defend those efforts. You can see them on TV, you can hear them on the radio, pushing the same thing over and over and over again. God wants you to be rich, they'll say. And if you have enough faith, you will be rich, they say. God rewards the faithful, and faithfulness is revealed in how much money you give. So sow a seed. Sow a seed of faith 
The more you give, the more your faith is revealed, and the more God will reward you for your faith, they say. And do you see the impact that these charlatans have had on the church? I can't tell you how many times, and perhaps you have felt it yourself or experienced it yourself, when you go to talk to someone about Jesus and you want to talk about the salvation that is richly offered in Him, the freedom and the liberty that He offers to you, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, the joy, all of it, and you're met with the rebuttal, all you guys care about is money. Because that's all they've heard. And where did they get this idea from? From the modern-day scribes and Pharisees who may look good externally, but preside over groups and so-called ministries that are dedicated to and devoted to satiating and satisfying their own greed. It's a sickening situation, if you ask me, that these wolves have plunged not only themselves into ruin and destruction, but are, as they teach, plunging the field that we are called to go into and minister the harvest into ruin as well as they increase the hostility of the unsaved towards the message of the gospel. But this greed is also not limited to just financial gain. It never is, right? Greed, all left unchecked, will turn on and turn against others who threaten their, that greed. And that greed can take the form of a desire for more influence, a desire for more power, for more status, for more stature, for an increased reputation, for more control. And the Pharisees were willing to gain all of these things or to, to lay hold of these things in ever-increasing measure by spiritual robbery and violence. They secured these things for themselves by creating extra-biblical burdens, placing them on the backs of the common man and saying, you stink if you can't keep up. They revealed this by hatching plots, for example, to kill those who threatened their cultural standing. They did this with Lazarus. If you remember, after Jesus performed this unbelievable miracle, raising Lazarus from the dead, we read in John's Gospel, in John chapter 12, verses 9 to 11, we read this, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You see, for the Pharisees and the religious leaders, status and honor were a zero-sum game, meaning if Jesus is honored, that means honor is subtracted from themselves. And for them, that just can't happen. They were so greedy for more cultural capital that they are willing to hatch a plot to put the one who is responsible for their cultural capital being lessened to death. They sought to eliminate, to kill the source and reason for their honor being, for honor being redirected away from them and towards Jesus. And so they sought to kill Jesus as well. Not just Lazarus, but they sought to kill Jesus as well. And they did this because, as John eleven fifty three or John tells us, that be, people were believing in Christ. And for that reason, John tells us that from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death as well. And all the while, with hearts full of such violent greed, they passed themselves off to everybody as godly 
and righteous. And they also, in their greed, slandered anyone who threatened their position. So not only did they try to kill people, but they also would slander and gossip about people who threatened their position. In John chapter 9, for example, after Jesus had just healed a man that was born blind from birth, the Pharisees and the scribes try to get to the bottom of what was happening. How did this man, who was born blind from birth, get healed? How did he regain his sight? And so they asked the man to tell him, who did this? And they slandered Jesus to him. And the man replied to them, saying this, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing And what was their response to this man? Slander, public slander. As they said in John 9.33, you were born in utter sin. And you would teach us, and they cast him out. Meaning they cast him out of the synagogue. They did the same to Jesus after he healed a demon-oppressed man who was mute and blind. When that man spoke and saw the crowds who were amazed at the miracle and looked and discussed among themselves if Jesus was indeed the promised son of David, when the Pharisees heard this, they said this, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that he casts out demons. They slandered Christ to the crowds, asserting that he was in league with the satanic realm. See, this is what greed in the heart always does because it is so committed to accumulating for the self, whether it's money, whether it's power, whether it's fame, whether it's status, whether it's control, whatever it is, greed always reacts to and responds in this way. It will either physically plunder or verbally pillage anyone who gets in the way of attaining the object it seeks and desires. And the same is true for us, isn't it? I want you to think about for a second and consider how you respond when the greed in your own heart, as we have defined it, is threatened by somebody else. If you are one who seeks influence and who seeks status, who seeks a tighter grip on power, how do you respond? Do you, like the Pharisees, look to knock down the threat a couple of pegs with your words about them? Are you one who maintains a good outward appearance? If you are, hear the words of Jesus in verse 26. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. Are you one who looks clean on the outside but are walking around with a heart full of greed? The word of Christ to you is woe. Woe to you. Repent of that wicked sin and confess it to Christ, our glorious Lord, who forgives everyone who turns to him in faith. The scribes and the Pharisees were not just full of greed, as Jesus said, but also, in verse 25, they were also full of self indulgence. This word here for self-indulgence comes from the family of words or the constellation of words that deal with self-control. The word here means they lacked self-restraint. 
They had no power or mastery over themselves. They were unable and or unwilling to suppress any unhealthy, shameful, sinful desires that cropped up in their heart. So Jesus here exposes them as people who instead of organizing their lives, instead of fashioning their lives around the will and the commands of God, even though they presented themselves as such, their lives self-indulgent as they were, were actually organized around the passions of their own wicked hearts. These men, while they looked good and they looked holy on the outside, were inside slaves to their own self-gratification. While they appeared to be self-controlled men, they were not but were instead held in bondage to their own fleshly cravings. Now, again, their fleshly cravings were for power and status. Our fleshly cravings in our particular generation are probably a little bit different. They had no self-control. Self-control being the ability to deny self, to restrain self, to possess some degree of mastery over our sinful, ungodly, fleshly lusts. This is actually, according to the New Testament, an aspect of the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work in the believer. Read in Galatians 5, for example, in 5, 19-21, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, division, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And listen to what Paul says in verse 21. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to that. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who practice such things. Because these are all the marks of those whose hearts are, like the scribes and Pharisees, full of self-indulgence. It is the indulgence of the flesh, for example, to practice sexual immorality and to give in to the sexual immorality and the mores of our particular day. Oh, how many have renounced their profession of faith to follow the indulgent paths of, sexual, of their sexual desire. How many have trampled on the blood of Christ. How many have heard about the freedom and the liberty and the forgiveness and the joy offered them in the gospel and choose rather to live in the outhouse of the world than the mansions of glory. It is the indulgence of the flesh to live in envy, to live in strife, jealousy, dissension, anger, rivalry, and division. And again, how many professing believers choose in direct disobedience to the word, the clear and express command of God to indulge these things in their hearts? Violating without apology the word of the Lord that they profess to serve, the Lord that they profess to believe in, the Lord they profess to be saved by. Hear it again. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Those who practice the works of the flesh, those who live in them, those who are settled in them, their profession of faith is a false profession, according to Paul. 
They might put on a good external show, but they're really filled with self-indulgence. Listen to the alternative that Paul gives, those who live life in the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. What's the next one? Self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Hear it again. Those who belong to Jesus, Paul says, have crucified the flesh. Meaning, they are actively engaged by the power of the Spirit who indwells in them. As the fruit of the Spirit is produced in them, they are actively engaged in nailing their fleshly passions and lusts to the cross, not indulging them. They are the ones who, as the great Puritan pastor John Owen once wrote, are engaged in killing sin because they know that if they don't, sin will be killing them. And again, Paul wrote in his second letter to Titus, listen to it, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Did you see it? Did you hear it? See what grace does, according to Paul. The grace of God has appeared, and first, it brings salvation. Second, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And third, it aids us in living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is what grace does. And he continues, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. You see the stark contrast between the one who is indwelt by the Spirit, who the, whose cup has been cleaned inside, and the one who only cleans the outside of the cup while not cleaning the inside. Self-indulgence is something that the Christian who is cleaned by the Spirit inside renounces. As the Spirit trains us to leave off the old ways of enslavement to various passions and pleasures of the flesh. The Holy Spirit actually trains and empowers the disciple. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, if you have put your faith in His name and are saved by His grace, then this is true of you. The Holy Spirit lives in you and is training you and, dis and empowering you to deny yourself, to gain some mastery over yourself, to crucify the old ways and to live self-controlled, upright lives. Not only externally that everyone the life that everyone sees but also internally because your heart is being renewed and transformed from one degree of glory to another day by day by day by day Jesus pronounces such harsh condemnations against these scribes and Pharisees for their external appearance of godliness which masked a wicked heart because of the devastation that such people bring upon the faithful in the church. Paul warned again his pastoral protege Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 to 7. Listen to it. 
In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. That is a powerful text. And did you hear the phrase? They have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. Appearance of godliness but deny its power. In other words, they put on a good external show and look religious, but deny the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit in you. Deny the fact that the Holy Spirit in you brings you to holiness of life, brings you to internal holiness before the Lord. See, those who, like the scribes and Pharisees, simply, who simply make excuses for their lack of growth in the fruit of the Spirit who make excuses for their persistent indulging in the pleasures of the flesh, who convince themselves that I can't wage war against my sin. I can't kill it. I can't crucify it. I can't fight the tough fight. I keep returning to the trough over and over again. I keep returning to it over and over again. If you sit there and you rest there and you justify yourself there, that is a denial of the power of true godliness. Christian, do not deny the power of the Holy Spirit in you. Do not let your flesh persuade you that you, can't, you cannot attain some degree of victory over the sin in your life. While it is true that you will never gain total victory, we can indeed, as Paul wrote in Amos, Romans 8.13, we can, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. And as the Apostle Peter wrote, this is super encouraging to me, the Lord's divine power, this is 2 Peter verses 1, chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. The Lord's divine power has granted to us, hear that phrase, granted to us. If you believe the Lord has in his divine power granted this to you, all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us, precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. In other words, God has called his children to live excellent, godly lives, and he has given us the power to do so by sending the Holy Spirit to live in us. God doesn't command you to live a holy life and then not give you the resources to do it. He gives you the resources to do it, which is why Peter can continue saying, for this reason, for this reason, because God has given you the Spirit and has given you the power, has given you what you need to live a life of godliness, for this reason, make every effort 
to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours, and listen, and are increasing, and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, those who truly believe in Christ, those in whom the Spirit dwells by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, are both called and empowered by the Lord to, as Paul put it in Colossians chapter 3, put to death what is earthly in you. See, you and I are not permitted to claim the name of Christ and then live settled, self-indulgent lives. We're not permitted to claim the name of Christ and then practice and live according to the sinful passions of our flesh, to give in to them, to protect them, and to justify them. We are not, nor are we permitted to encourage others in self-indulgence, nor are we permitted to applaud such self-indulgence in others, as many in our society who profess Christ seem to do. While the world, your flesh, and the devil might labor to convince you otherwise, might labor to convince you that you will only be truly happy and truly authentic if you will only be the best version of yourself, if you follow your heart, if you be yourself, if you do what you think will make you happy in this life, Scripture tells us the opposite is true. Instead, as Ephesians 4 tells us, we are to put off our old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of our minds and put on the new self created after God in true righteousness and holiness. See, what the scribes lacked in all of their outward appearance of righteousness was a true and lively faith that impacts and changes their heart from being full of and devoted to greed and self-indulgence to a heart full of love for the Lord, filled with the desire to live for Him, to deny self, to live a righteous life out of love for Him. Do you see how little the outward appearance of righteousness counted for true holiness in the eyes of Christ in this engagement with the Pharisees? Now, I just want to make something clear, because if you've attended this church for any length of time, you know that we do not teach, nor do we ascribe to the heretical notion that you are saved by your works. You aren't saved by your works. You aren't saved because you try to live a righteous life. You aren't saved because you do a good job cleaning the outside of your cup and plate. You are saved by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And out of that grace, as the Spirit lives in you, your goals in life will be transformed, and that is the fruit of saving faith. Your goals will be transformed from indulging the passions of your flesh to, to aiming at righteous living for His glory and for His exaltation. 
And as we strive to live that life of righteousness, I want you to be under no illusion that this is an easy thing to do. As you and I labor to put our greed and our self-indulgence to death, you and I will fail. You and I will falter. You and I will lose many battles along the way. But the difference between the Pharisee whose heart is full of greed and the true believer who at times succumbs to greed is that while the Pharisee cares nothing about the greed in his heart and continues to live in that greed with no shame, the Christian, striving to put on Christ and put to death their sin, grieves over their failure and grieves over their sin. And all glory to the Lord, you If you are a true Christian who hates your sin but succumbs to it an awful lot, the often repeated biblical truth holds for you. Fellow believer, if you confess your sin, Christ is faithful and just to forgive you your sin. However, if you are one who has been trying to straddle some sort of line between self-indulgence and professing faith in Christ then hear the command of Christ to the scribes and Pharisees again. You blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. If you would be truly righteous, if your external outward deeds would be considered righteous by the Lord, because in the end, isn't that all that truly matters? How other people see you isn't anything in comparison to how the Lord sees you. And the Lord, make no mistake about it, sees every single one of us as we truly are. Not how we present ourselves to each other. And God said as much to the prophet Samuel, for example, when it came time to anoint a new king in Israel, Samuel looked upon one man named Eliab and thought, surely, surely, This big, muscle-bound, handsome man has got to be the king. But Eliab wasn't the Lord's choice. And so the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his outward appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, the Lord knows who you truly are. The Lord knows who I truly am. He knows when our outward appearances don't match our internal reality. He knows when you and I are putting on a show. He knows when what we say and what we do is mere pretense and hypocrisy to cover up wickedness in our heart. He knows it all. If we would be truly righteous, the inside must be cleansed or all the outward works mean nothing. Moral renovation without the new birth, without being regenerated by the Spirit, without true faith and love to the Lord, is nothing more than putting a nice window dressing in front of a garbage dump. So it's truly time to confront yourself. It's not time to say to yourself, if only, if only so-and-so were here listening. No, this is for you. This is time for you to search your own heart, for you to consider your own external life and how it measures up to your heart. 
Do you truly believe and are you seeking to root out greed and self-indulgence or are you putting on a show that is designed to impress and hide your true self from everyone around you? If you recognize that your life is one big game of pretending to be what you are not, then the Lord Jesus Christ offers you hope in this moment and you can quit the tiring game and you can truly turn to him in faith. You can repent of your heart filled with greed and self-indulgence and call out to Christ as the Holy Spirit gives you a new heart that is bursting with love for the Lord and a desire to lay down your own life for His sake. As the Lord calls you and gives you the ability to give up the trickery and simply live honestly. And out of this new heart to live a truly righteous life. I mean, doesn't it get tiring? Doesn't it get tiring to put all this effort into concealing our sin from other people? Doesn't it get tiring to put on such a great outward show, put on a good presentation in front of others, all the while being worried that they're going to find out who we really are? Don't you get tired of sowing fig leaves for yourself like Adam and Eve did in the garden, thinking you can cover yourself from others? Leave it behind. Because if you don't, the next words of Christ to the Pharisees, which are built on these, ring true, verses 27 to 28. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you, are, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. To live a life that appears outwardly beautiful to others while being filled with hypocrisy, lawlessness, greed, and self-indulgence is like being a whitewashed tomb. The idea being a a nice brand new tomb that is washed and beautified for visual effect. But within that tomb, it is full, full right up to the top with dead people's bones. See, even the most beautiful of tombs house decaying corpses. These, external, these externally moral scribes and Pharisees looked beautiful, but Jesus said they were like tombs housing rotten, sinful, decaying souls. And what's more, the added truth that Jesus is giving here is that not only did they appear righteous and are filled with dead men's bones, but if you go back to the Old Testament, in the Old Testament you realize that contact with a dead body made you unclean and unfit for worship at the tabernacle or at the temple. The idea being, the Pharisees' life and example only serve to defile everyone around them, as do those in our own day who leaven the church with their hypocrisy, who do everything that they can to appear to give the impression that they are righteous, all the while it's a simple masquerade. If you are like the scribes and the Pharisees described by Jesus here, are you content to remain in that state? Would you be like the scribes and the Pharisees who think nothing of their internal situation, who care nothing for their eternal soul, and worst of all, by their lives defame the name of the Lord with their hypocrisy? In closing, I pray that every one of us here this morning would look to Christ and confess to Him our sins of hypocrisy. Confess those times when we would rather appear righteous than actually live righteously. 
That we would cry out to Him for the internal cleansing of the Holy Spirit, for the power to live righteous lives in this world for His honor and His exaltation, that we might let our light shine before others, that they may see our good works, our truly good works, and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Father, we thank you for the words of our Lord Jesus Christ here this morning. We thank you that while they're not directed specifically toward us, that there is so much that we can learn, so much we can be warned about. And I thank you that you can, we can be warned about these things because in your grace you have given us the breaths to be here this morning. You have given us the life to be here this morning. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would be working in each one of us, that we would give up the pretenses and seek to live truly righteous lives as your faithful children who love you because we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And we ask this all in his name. Amen.